Marshawn Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey guys, super pumped for this discussion episode. Got a bunch of big topics that I want to get into. Quick shout out to the Supercast. It is how you can support the show. Huge thanks to the Lifetime subscriber who joined and supported us yesterday. Really appreciate that. You can go to realignment.supercast.com or click the link at the top of your show notes if you want to support the show and access to all the different bits of bonus content. Sagar, let's hit the most low stakes, but also high stakes relative to what we do discussion, Twitter. I want to start by just asking you to describe something you said to me in a text message that really resonated. You were excited about Elon's acquisition because you saw the possibility of this bringing back to the early 2010s Wild West social media space. So can you describe what that period was like, especially because many of our listeners literally were not online in these platforms and don't remember what that was like? Yeah, I mean, at a most basic level, the TikTokification effect of the 2016 onward internet existed at a very nascent game. So let, let's explain what that is. TikTokification means time on platform is the only metric that matters because time on platform equals the most amount of ads that can be sent. The root of all evil lies in that for the destruction of social media, which is that the early social media game was still nascent enough and not enough of a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar industry that engagement was a key metric, but usage and just all of that was not tiered in the same way for prioritization. So why does any of this bullshit gobbledygook matter? It matters because at that time, we were dealing with chronological feed. We were dealing with no, not even censorship is the wrong word, no amplification, deamplification. It was genuinely a level playing field. And the side effect of all of that is it was a lot of fun to use. So I think that what I was really excited about was the idea that Elon would reverse some of these very bad trends, which are downstream really of the advertising online model, specifically because it doesn't take a genius to look at Twitter's metrics. I did a whole monologue on this, Marshall. Twitter's business is literally god-awful. I actually can't even believe that he's paid $40 billion for it. It should have been This is why he spent six Probably months less. trying to get out of yeah. the deal, because this <laughs> yeah. was a bad deal. <laughs> like, no no joke. Like, l- let me describe it, okay? Twitter has only been profitable two years of its entire existence. Since of around those- 2007 then, right? Yeah, so since 07, it was only profitable for two years. Last year, 2021, of their verified financials, they only made $5 billion in ads. Facebook makes that in like a week. Facebook did $180 billion in ads. Google did $250 billion in ads. We're not even talking about companies. Twitter is a small business compared to the actual big tech firms. It's not a good advertising model. 90% of its ads come from there. Terrible profitability. They don't have any innovation in the space. All of their innovation previously was garnered on their big bet. I don't know if people know this is that Jack Dorsey, the way one of the ways he was trying to justify his existence is he's like, I'm going to get a hundred more million people on Twitter. Huge failure right now. Twitter at best, this is if you believe their numbers has only 300 million users. That's not valuable. This is not a lot of people compared to again, Facebook, 1.8 billion, Google billions and billions. You know, nobody even knows there's 8 billion Google searches per day. So the point is, is that, This is not a way, like Twitter trying to play in that space 
is actually what ruined it in the first place because it went to the algorithmic feed. Then they realized that the underlying value of Twitter and all this is news, is the ability to have discourse, discussion amongst elites. And that brought them into the whole fact checking and the politics and all of that was a colossal disaster reputationally for the company at the same time that they had terrible financials. So I was excited at the prospect of Elon bringing some of that. Is that a good explanation of like everything? Yeah. And the thing that fits into a broader theme, I want to do an interview episode with this, probably with someone like Jules Turpak, is there's this broad theme of social media itself kind of dying, which doesn't really yeah. make any sense if you're just thinking of, what do you mean? Twitter is there. Meta is struggling, but Facebook and Instagram are always still there. But the way this social media is dying narrative really fits in is people are just posting less. People yep. are engaging less. Power users of Twitter, I literally, as everyone knows, I don't tweet, but you are a power user. You're unique because you work in the news business. But even broad power users of Twitter, the people who actually contribute the posts, the tweets, the discourse are actually posting less over time. So another key difference between this 2010s era and just today is that people work more. My style of engagement on social media, not tweeting, barely posting on Instagram once yep. or twice a year when there's a special anniversary rather than saying, man, I like that apple pie. Here's a picture, aka what you would do in the early 2010s, has just converted to just a real lack of engagement on the space. So if you are comparing the difficulties that Facebook, obviously under Meta, Twitter, and all these different companies are actually having, it's just that they are no longer in a space where just adding more users equals more engagement, equals more time on platform. I got a new phone. I didn't have Facebook installed on my phone for five months. If you yeah. went back in time and talked to 2009 Marshall, that would be incomprehensible. I spent so much time on Facebook. I spent so much time in these spaces. And I think the real tension that you're kind of getting at, Sagar, is it may just be that we are transitioning to a world where everyone wanting to have as big of a network, as big of a friends list to reference OG Facebook, as many different groups they're a part of may just be over. The reason why you're talking about TikTokification is, and this is why TikTok and YouTube are the two most successful social media platforms, because those are about views. So mm -hmm. I think most people, well, not most people, people who are thinking about this, oh yeah, you would love to have, I, we would love, we don't use TikTok for obvious geopolitical reasons, but let's just pretend that's not an issue. We would love to have this clip get 200 million views on TikTok because the algorithm picks it up. That said, I am no longer driven by man, I hope I get a lot of people posting on my wall so I look cool. Or man, yep. I didn't get tagged at that photo at prom. So like, remember that? Remember when tagged totally. photos yeah. were a thing? Mattered you a lot. your Facebook and started all over once you became prominent. It's just a yeah. weird dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I almost don't even know if it's a change in our behavior as much as it is we reached the logical conclusion, which is that there's not that many more people. This is the problem. All of these businesses in the beginning was what? Uh, get big or die. Right, it was like big, 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 big. But now there's not a lot more new people for to use Facebook or to use Google. So with the entire world effectively now online, 
Now it's all about a competition for eyeballs, a competition for retention. That's actually what I would say. It's not really views, Marshall. It's really retention, which is that they don't want to, we don't want 200 million views on ours. TikTok wants 200 million views in general across an hour, which means that you're glued to the phone, which means they can serve you more ads. Same with Instagram. It's why they tried to ruin the Instagram app and turn it into reels. Same with Twitter. They want you on Twitter. Even YouTube. Why is YouTube so freaking successful? And what do the... If you, as a guy and you know, you too, what do we make our living on YouTube? Well, what's the first thing to tell you? Retention, 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 retention. It's about click through. It's about retention. The more retention that you have, the more ads. Now it has the added benefit of if you have retention, that means that your video is good. Although I would kind of dispute that to be honest, but let's say that there is some value that the, uh, listener or the viewer is getting. The only reason they want you to have retention is so they can serve you multiple ads. Everybody knows who plays a YouTube game. You want to go 801 minutes because you can get mid-roll ad break. Well, that means you make more money. That means Google makes more money. The point is, is that everything is about engagement and about time on platform. So I think this will transition us to Elon is, is getting to something, which is that he does need to charge. Like He needs to charge money on Explain Twitter. that. He, right now, t- Twitter, $5 billion business. Elon wants to actually turn this into a profitable company. The only way to turn it into a profitable company is basically fire more than half of the staff or working on a bunch of bullshit and then focus directly on P&L, profit and loss. You're like, okay, what actually makes money? In my opinion, he's going to have massive advertising problems if he actually does want to go down the content moderation scheme that he wants to stick to. Explain so, that because people don't really think about advertising. Right. Explain to people yeah. how a normie like ad buyer is thinking about Elon Musk's Twitter mm-hmm. right now. Normie ad buyer. Oh, I mean, look, it already happened. GM restricted ads right now on Twitter. Uh, there are reports from the Wall Street Journal that huge advertisers for Twitter would pull out if Trump is back on the platform. And the real thing is like, they just don't want the headache that could affect their share price. And here's the dirty little secret about ads. It, what I'm increasingly learning, basically all ads are fake except for Facebook and Google ads. This may sound controversial. I will add podcast ads in there, although there is a lot of questions around ROI on those, and some of those you're kind of just throwing money, which is, here's what I've learned from actually reading about the cable news business. A lot of this shit is just legacy. People, here's what happens. GM has a new car. They allocate $100 million for the car. They spend the vast majority or on the advertising budget for said car. They spend the vast majority on ads that do work. But their ad buyers or subcontract out firms, they'll be like, hey, guys, just go play around with this. They have money to burn. So they spend some of it on Jimmy Kimmel. They spend some of it on Twitter. They spend some of it where it has more to do almost, to be honest, with advertising networks of like keeping (laughs) certain individuals happy than efficacy. Nobody can prove that any of these ads do a goddamn thing except for Facebook and Google. And by the way, they make the vast majority of money because Facebook and Google have the proven ability actually built into their advertising platforms to show you increase in business relative to ad spend. That's why they make the billions that they do. So the question then becomes, if you're already dealing with a superfluous and bad ad, well, then you're going to be far more pressurable on whether to even spend that money or not. I want so to that's explain why something I, real quick because it's actually really yeah. important that people think about this. The problem with Twitter is that there are two different issues that Elon Musk was nominally trying to address. And I want people, especially on the right part of the audience, to think about this because it's not obvious, especially at the public framing. So as has been widely reported, a big driver in Elon's decision to purchase Twitter was the um, banning of the Babylon Bee. 
That is in the category of a debate about speech and internet and representation on the platform and bias, whatever. That debate is entirely different than the debate over why doesn't this company make money? Why is this company much more like a newspaper in that a newspaper is big? It's super important. It's the news, but it's not making as much money as a tech company. Why isn't it more like Facebook? So the issue that Elon is facing right now is that he has to, within his perspective, address the political bias issue while also not convincing advertisers, oh, this is now a Wild West platform because you and I may hear 2010s and it's fun, it's different, it gets a little weird. If you're an advertiser working in a big Fortune 500 company, let's say you're working at Ford or GM, the last thing you want to do is answer, hey, I just saw a report that like the right. N-word exploded on Twitter. And once again, people could fact check us to say, I didn't see it in my feed. The way this actually works if you're an ad buyer at a major corporation is it just matters that the headline was there. Yeah. That's and the difficulty. That's, I want to emphasize, you know, here's another good point about 2000s era internet. Major ad company, major companies were not spending money on Twitter and on Facebook. It was not that. It was really a bunch of nascent businesses. I want people to understand this. In 2016, Facebook made like 16 billion. It made a hundred something billion this year. Six years later, that represents institutional capital going all in on Google and Facebook ads. Now, you could argue, as I would have at the time, they were idiots for not doing that in 2016. But the point is, is that they caught up which means all the institutional and corporate pressures of America are now placed directly on these big tech companies. And again, we have to solve the structural issue. And you know, why don't we take a step back and say like, why do we even care? I'll tell you why I care. I was made on Twitter. I was no way I'd be where I am without Twitter. I think Twitter is awesome. I've learned so many amazing and interesting things. I've connected with so many people all across the world. Uh, it's added so much immense value to my life as annoying as it has been. And so like, I want this shit to work. Like I, I genuinely actually like it. So I want the product to be good. I want the business to be good. And also I think I can add a little bit on this, you know, since we run a success, successful subscription business at realignment and at breaking points, which is subscription is the bedrock of the ability to have breathing room. When you are reliant on ads like Snapchat, their shit dropped 40% off of a slight change in the ad rate. That's not a good way to run a business. Like the best way to run a business is to have consistent recurring revenue. So then it gets to what should you charge for? And this is where I am just totally disagreeing with Elon on his plans right now. I think he's completely wrong in his current scheme. Yeah, the big, the big problem here, and this is why I kind of love these tech conversations because a bunch of things kind of fit together. In a perfect world, from the start, Twitter could have charged a small but fair amount of money to just participate, be on the app, all those different dynamics. This is the same dynamic that happened with newspapers mm -hmm. in the early 1990s. When they started online, they didn't charge for content because they didn't charge for content. There's no expectation that you would pay. And you basically have to go through 20 years of publications finally realizing wow, we're going to have to brute force our way to make these subscriptions work because that's better business than advertising. Because though, the vast, vast, vast 99.9% .9 of Twitter's time of existence has been free, I just really struck to see users who are already posting and engaging less getting convinced to pay 
for the current set of different things. And something that, you know, I, you and I really talked about this. Mm-hmm. There was a bit of a talk where Elon floated the idea of charging for a blue check. The second I heard that, I said, oh yeah, it's screwed. Because look, I would love a blue check. Blue check, as currently stands, would be really great. Right? Because you know, I mostly use Twitter not mm-hmm. to post, but as LinkedIn. I'm DMing people. I'm getting guests. If I had a blue check status quo, that would be so helpful. However, if a blue check becomes known as something that's, that you actually you pay, pay for, for to get, yeah. the value of the blue check will go down. And frankly, you're going to have an opposite counter signal where the cool kids, like for example, Joe Weisenthal, Joe Weisenthal, great friend of the show, Bloomberg, Odd Lots podcast, Joe Weisenthal doesn't have a blue check. Yep. The Vol, 2 million followers, doesn't have a blue check. The underlying thing that they've signaled and other people will start picking up is, whoa, I don't need your label. It's like, was the kid who was wearing Abercrombie and Fitch and the Moose cool in eighth grade? Or was the person who just was kind of doing their own thing and vibing cooler? You guys all know the answer to that. Bingo. So that's just the weird, weird, weird dynamic that I don't really see them getting around. I, I don't, this is the issue. And I, here, I'll just print, pull up my tweet on this because I basically, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And again, the reason I spent a lot of time thinking about this is I kind of did this for breaking points. I was like, okay, media, YouTube, how does this all shit work? What are the incentives? Let's go to the basic. Let's design it. You want to build as fundamentally like an anti-fragile business. And like, that's what I want for Twitter. I want it to work. So I said, IMHO, in my humble opinion, Elon has it wrong. Users should be charged at a tiered pricing based upon number of followers. Many can stand not having a blue check. They cannot stand not being a part of a conversation or having access to timely promotion. Fundamentally, I like the idea of charging. Ter- Twitter's a terrible ad business, et cetera. And I expanded on that. And I said, after he announced the $8 a month plan, I said, the blue check is not inherently valuable, except possibly for reducing spam. What people with large followings would pay a lot more than $8 a month for is the ability to maintain connection to their audience and to the discourse. Twitter has punched above its actual weight relative to the big tech players, small users, terrible advertisers. Right now, it has that value is, oh, sorry. Its only actual value is the impact discussion on platform has on elite opinion, which by definition affects trillions in economic value. Right now, that value is dispersed and the company is not capturing it. The only way to capture it at scale is instituting tiered price relative to economic value that accounts get from their presence here. So can I give you a perfect example? Because I was thinking about this. You know how when you have a shit flight and you know that the best way to get in touch with American Airlines is to tweet at them? So Twitter, through no innovation, actually created the greatest customer service platform of all time. Why is American not paying millions of dollars to Twitter for the privilege? And by the way, by doing so, Twitter could actually set up a back-end customer relation, customer support feature for American Airlines for the, so everybody is getting something. The average person, I don't think should ever have to pay. Like, I don't think anybody should have over $25,000. Only after that should you be again paying. But you mean 25,000 followers. Followers, sorry. 25,000 followers and more should pay. But like, that is a perfect example of, if I went to American in 2002 and I was like, hey, real time, people can send messages to you with their direct flight information and you can reply and you can make sure that you, A, can avoid a PR problem and B, can actually solve your customer, they would pay you a shitload of money for that. There are so many companies. Remember, you told me this when we were having our MailChimp problem uh, with uh, with MailChimp for breaking points. You were like, dude, just tweet at them. Like emailing and calling isn't gonna, and you were right within five minutes of tweeting about it. <laughs> but again, me 
tweeting about it and then they doing something and replying on that, YouTube does this all the time. If you have a problem with your YouTube channel, ironically, the best place to do that is Twitter. If you have a problem with your YouTube channel, you tweet about it, YouTube will reply with an instance being, again, YouTube should have to pay. MailChimp, I use MailChimp for our business. We pay them a shitload of money per year. <laughs> and guess what? They charge us based upon the number of our emails that we have. So if you have a email list of less than 10,000, you get pay X. Once you reach like tens of thousands, you have to pay a lot more. That's what we pay. But guess what? By paying that, there is an acknowledgement that we derive more than the thousands of dollars that we pay MailChimp per year in economic value relative to what MailChimp is giving us. And by context, MailChimp builds you all these backend CRM things. Like that's how you make real money. That's why software as a service is such a business. So I really can't get it out of my head on why the blue check is not valuable. Like you said for the stalwart. Guess what? Joe is addicted to Twitter. I guarantee you he probably would pay if, if he was unable to tweet anymore. But he doesn't give a shit about the blue check. Naval, I don't know that he needs to pay. But there are a lot of people out there. Include, by the way, I've been thinking about it. I don't think I'm going to pay for it. No, you're I mean, not going to pay for it. I could we'll, expense it. Well, and here's, I'm just like, here's, I don't want, and by the way, I actually don't really want to because I'm like, I don't care. Like, I have a blue check wherever it matters. Anybody who follows me, you know it's me. I don't give a shit. Like, what, what, do, what, do, what am I get for this? And the quick thing is the joke that yeah. I made, two quick things before we could do the next segment. The joke I made is the only people who care about blue checks are people who don't have blue checks already. So me, yeah. I am in peak. I care about blue check mode because I'm like, okay, I've got 18K followers. That's more than enough followers to your respectable. People will check my DMs. So, man, if I just had that extra blue check. But mm -hmm. I guarantee you the second that I get it, I just would stop caring. That's not a dynamic you get people pay for. The last thing though, and this is the really, and this is why this, look, I hope a, a takeaway people get from this segment is social media right now is basically dying. No one knows how to fix it. And the least from my perspective, interesting part of it is what does Elon Musk's content moderation board look like? Yeah, There I totally are deep, agree. deep, deep business and technological issues at hand that have nothing to do with politics. And if this ends up being a miscalculation for Elon, it's Elon had a political critique of a platform, bought the platform for too much, and then couldn't solve the fundamental business reasons. And the last thing I'll say on this, though, and I'll, I'll let you post the segment, Sagar, is here's the problem, though. The reason why you are probably going to see a lot of pushback from users having to pay. I'll play, I'll, I'll play Kara Swisher, for example. So Kara Swisher would probably say to you, okay, Sagar, you want me to pay because I get value from this platform? Here's something you're forgetting. Already, based on your comments, Sagar, you've pointed out that Twitter is about time on platform. It's about advertising. So actually right now, I'm bringing value to your platform. If mm -hmm. I don't tweet, and if people like me who produce, it's with Twitter, it's one of the, it's a power law thing. Like 1% of, of people who tweet produce 99% of all the content. So the, what they can say to you is, Sagar, Elon Musk's CMO or, an, or CFO in this case, you're saying we need to pay you for the privilege. Um, if we just stopped tweeting, this platform would go to zero. Therefore, you can't charge us. Think of YouTube. YouTube not only doesn't charge us, to post videos and get in their algorithm, they actually pay us once we get 6,000 plus subscribers. If YouTube tried to charge us, I'd say, are you crazy? Rumble, Rumble, just, uh, I guess I'm admitting to this, Rumble reached out. They want us to start posting real life videos. Rumble's pitch is they're offering a higher cut of the actual ad revenue 
than YouTube offers. They are not saying, oh, by the way, you get all this value, you could pay us. That's the awkward dynamic. And, they, and then, so the, the bar here that you if, as CFO would have to solve is prove that you are actually giving us value, not just trying to steal from us when we create the actual value. I've thought about this a lot. And the difference between, tw- <laughs> this is this is the part of the problem though. You have to admit basically your ads are bullshit because, okay, <laughs> why does YouTube and Instagram and TikTok all pay its content creators? The reason why is because they actually get value. Those ads are worth something. A YouTube ad actually works. A Instagram ad actually works. TikTok ads actually work. Twitter ads don't work. And that's why the, paying the creator doesn't make any sense because these tw- these tweets are bullshit. So the, Here's wait, the other to, thing. to clarify, because I yeah. get what you're saying. Your, your point is, are, the reason why you and I will make 40, uh, like, a decent percentage of this video when it's posted on YouTube is the video actually converts. People yes. actually look at the ads. It has value. Your point is your tweet outlining this actually has no value. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Okay. Yes, which is that the Twitter ad, for, for, for Twitter ads to pay a portion to the creator, that would presume that the creator doing that is actually adding any real value to the platform. And what I'm saying is that you kind of have to take, I mean, look, what's the point of buying this company if you're the richest man in the world and not just admitting the truth, which is like, yeah, these ads are bullshit. Like this, they actually just don't work. There's a way to totally realign this entire business and to make it, here's the other thing, you know, content moderation, you're, you're solving content moderation. Who, why does cable, why is Fox News totally and completely not care about any of these advertising boycotts against Tucker? You know why? Because the vast majority of their fucking profit comes from the cable subscribers. You know, CNN, as much as I dunk on them, they don't give a shit if anybody watches. They make they make a billion in profit no matter what. They had a 70% decline in ratings last year and their profit went up to 3.2 billion collectively. Profit, not because revenue. they are a hyper-valuable part of the cable bundle. Bingo. Because they're a hyper-valuable part of the cable bundle, so they don't care. That's the point. So actually, my I just solved content moderation, which is build a good business. If you build, if you build a good business, it doesn't matter. Then you can just be like, yeah, fuck you, GM, go ahead. I don't care. Be my guest. And you know, if your ads actually worked, it would mean something. So I see a lot. I saw Jules uh, saying, like, oh, content creators should get paid. I saw Elon saying the same thing. I'm like, dude, you, you don't understand the business you just bought, which is that people who do who increase engagement on Twitter are really not adding value to anything except for in again and i i don't know why this is so difficult for people to understand the value of twitter is elite opinion and that let's in all admit new, well we said this a couple of times i do want to say yeah i feel like that's true in the news category like you know you like oh, there's dude, sports no. twitter i think you, you think that you think this is true across what categories of news absolutely i think it's uh, uh, actually the economy finance is a huge one right the finance is totally separate from you fintwit runs markets man i mean markets crash and burn all the time based upon viral tweets uh, vcs have been made on twitter uber was literally designed you know the, remember famously was a guy garrett camp i think is his <laughs> name replied to travis kalanick's tweet no i i i think every sector vc twitter matters a lot it affects the way that people are thinking the problem is it's not tangible so again like you need to try and what the the fundamental engineering problem you have to solve is how do I capture five percent of that value? Because if you do, you'd be a bit multi-billionaire. Uh-huh. And I mean he already is, but to make that company like real, you have to try and capture the actual value to the economy is adding. I'll give you a good example. You know, Jerome Powell actually it has a Twitter account. 
and follows econ Twitter. That's worth a shitload of money. So the if chair you, of the Federal I mean, Reserve is, the chair, is, is, yeah, is spending chair time here. The chair of the here. Federal Reserve <laughs> is literally getting economic pushback on Twitter. Jason Furman, the former Obama C, uh, CEA, is always on Twitter battling in elite opinion. This affects markets to a historic degree. All of us know politicians pay attention to Twitter. I, by the way, I, off the record, I can't tell you how obsessed that they are with Twitter. I won't say who, but I had dinner with somebody, a very prominent person. They were obsessed with, they were checking Twitter constantly <laughs> while I was at dinner with them. And it, of course, followed me on Twitter after. The, like the point is, is that you have to capture some of that value. Uh, and I think it's a very interesting proposition. That's why I think it's, this is a fun discussion for me because I'm like, how do you capture the economic value? And the other reason is, is that I hate the TikTokification of media. I hate YouTube shorts. I hate retention. I hate most reels. Like I, I personally don't like it. And I, I'm willing to bet that a lot of people don't do. Let me ask so, a difficult question yeah. here, which comes up. Is that just the fact that you and I are middle-aged millennials? Okay, but where there's a lot of us too, right? I mean, so I guess not, what I just mean not, is kind of- Not a small market. Like, it seems like Gen Z likes this. Be my guest. I mean, but why should the whole thing be built for you? There's a lot of people. Yep, that's how you know. Let's uh, get to the second and uh, final big topic for this episode. Obviously, we are going into the midterms. Want to approach this through a couple different angles. Let's just say generically, we think there's going to be a red wave. What seems to have happened from my perspective is a couple of things. A, Dobbs ended up not driving the discourse on two different levels. What, this is what will probably happen from my perspective. So number one, Republicans course corrected very, 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 very quickly. Yep. In June, 2022, Blake Masters removing extreme pro-life rhetoric from his site. If he had not taken that hard pivot, I think that still would have been a consistent issue. Um, I think the real difference between this and previous abortion game-changing elections, like in 2012, is Republicans just were like, nope, just just move on. Don't talk about it. We're not going to run to the national abortion ban. It seems pretty clear that with a few exceptions, the big, large pro-life infrastructure just let Republicans moderate their, their public-facing positions to take it off the table, especially after the hard pushback you saw with the early polling and with the referendums. And then two, the issue just happened way too early in the cycle. I think if the Dobbs decision and that whole cycle had happened in September, we would have had an entirely different midterm dynamic. But when it's in June, July, August, and then you have September, October, November to get back on the economic issues, there's no way to see this not happening the way I'm predicting. Yeah. What do you think? I, I just pulled up an interesting, uh, interesting graph. Wall Street Journal uh, poll just came out this morning about how suburban women are flocking back to GOP on the vote. And it highlights exactly what you're saying. Yes, they are concerned about abortion. However, uh, part of the interesting thing here is that abortion does matter in a couple of races, Marshall, but they're not ones that people are paying attention to. Michigan, yeah. like areas where it genuinely is in play in a way that it's not nationally. Well, so there's a referendum in Michigan, isn't there? Like an actual- exactly. and they have yeah. existing laws on the books, which would put it away, which means that Gretchen Whitmer is getting much more of an abortion boost than the rest of the country. So if Tudor Dixon loses, that doesn't negate the whole Roe versus Wade matters thesis. Second, which is, 
Abortion, at the end of the day, people feel very strongly about it, but it has never been top of mind. You know what people do all have in common? They all have to buy food, and they all have to buy gas, and they all have to pay their bills. So, by definition, that is going to be at the top of a priority list, and also, by definition, that will appeal to the vast majority of people. So, like, you are structurally disadvantaging yourself when you're limiting yourself, ultimately, to a message which you hope will only resonate with 50% of the population. Actually, I saw a reporter online get a ton of pushback for this, where she was like, look, I think abortion is important, she goes, but for a lot of voters, it's just not as important as the economy. And she got savage. You know, people were like, well, you're saying like women's health care, blah. And it's like, look, like, okay, I'll live here in Virginia. Shit's not going to change in Virginia on abortion. But we know what could change? The economy, like bills. So it's one of those things where people have to rank those. Also, uh, locally, this is part of the issue, crime is one of those which there's no democratic response on crime. I haven't seen single one. The only one I seem to see is that actually what you're seeing and hearing and feeling around you is fake, which good luck with that. Uh, So they don't have a response on the cultural front. And actually, here's the other thing I want to make the point on crime. Crime is the same thing as the economy, which actually does affect everybody. And everybody can see and can feel it and interact with it not in the same way. So there's a lot of structural reasons why the abortion thing didn't end up, end up coming to play. I, if I was a Republican, though, I mean, you know, fuck around and find out. Like, try and pass a national abortion ban when you're in Congress, and you'll see real quick uh, what happens to you. Like you said, the only thing that worked for them is by basically saying, oh, uh, yeah, you know, like, really, really, really deep red state. Effectively, the American South, abortion will be illegal, and everywhere else, like, people will have some restrictions or not. Also, I did read an interesting piece about how abortions post Roe versus Wade really did not dip that much. Um, I don't know what the exact number was. I think it was like, it only dipped by like 20% or something. And it's largely because of these mail-in pills, uh, these like abortion pills. And so it's like for some, you know, for people who really wanted access or whatever, like it actually hasn't changed all that much. People, please don't come for me, but like, I'm just telling you what the official data is. Yeah, I think that's on, good. That's a good chance to give a, to give a, like statement like right now this is not like a policy discussion yeah we're discussing the political side of things because i I think the thing i want to add to what you're articulating here and i've been fascinated by this it seems to me because i want to talk to you like what we think biden's done well and hasn't done well but it seems to me the big structural problem for democrats especially like center-left democrats has been they just entirely misread what these first two years were going to be about. So think of the big narratives that came out um, in January 2021. You're coming off of the genuinely shocking January 6th protests. You've had COVID, government's been spending untold amounts of money on aid. So you actually have this real articulation of, wow, Joe Biden has the opportunity to be the next FDR and mm-hmm. his presidency is going to be about merging center left normie realism, AKA the case for Joe Biden with aggressive progressive economic goals. That economic narrative. Oh, and then trying to reopen the country as fast as possible, like within reason they were on track. Look, there's a whole other debate about how long restrictions were, but if you're just, I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who would be at the white house. It's May 2021. 
you're doing it. You're passing your bills. New York is reopening. Mayor Adams is in nightclub owner mode. Okay, we've made it through. Inflation, crime, Nuked it. the after yeah. effects of COVID. So not the direct things that you could just spend money on. That just nukes the entire narrative. And it was very clear, very clear that on the domestic front, there was just no ability to come to an actual narrative or framework that could guide their discussion. And instead, and look, it's funny, you kind of had this happen with, with, the, with the Tom Ricks episode where Tom Ricks um, was like, there's no crime increase. I'm like, come on, Tom, like there's a Tom. Yeah, Let me say it because I, need, I yeah. need to speak up for Tom Ricks real quick. So it goes, Tom goes, there's no crime increase. I'm like, it's not just a Republican talking point. This is real. He actually emailed after the, I've never had a guest do this. He emailed after the fact said, hey, I looked it up. You were correct. So I want, I want, I want to give props to people who are pissed about that. We've actually, I've actually never had a guest like self yeah, fact check themselves yeah. after the fact. So legit. But the whole point is there was just no willingness. No, not even willingness. I, I, I don't think this was as simple as like, well, I was like, it just didn't compute. You were not supposed, this was the year of post 2020 racial awakening. Okay. We're going to kind of moderate, defund the police. Yeah. Not like, oh wait, like it could be 1966. And crime is starting to increase. No awareness of that. Yeah. I mean, look, I I don't know why it is so difficult. I just saw Jake Tapper did a thing where he's like, violent crime is down 1%. I'm like, motherfucker, you, t- you, you had to compare 22 to 2021. I'm like, look at it in the last two years. It's way up, man. Look, you and I live in cities, Marshall. It's sketchy. And like, it doesn't take a genius. I've lived here for 10, 11 years, a long time. And I'm telling you, it's not safe. It's not as close as once. Now it isn't. This here is the other thing. So I got an email today yeah. from somebody of breaking points. They're like, where is a safe place to stay in Washington? I'm like, just stay in, in a normal hotel downtown. Like, it's fine. Like, am I saying that you're going to get shot when you're out? No. Am I saying that if you live in a nice neighborhood that you are literally going to get murdered? No. What I'm saying is <laughs> you're going to increase your amount of run-ins with vagrants and that one or once look it's all about odds which is that the odds that you may get assaulted are actually much higher than they used to be that's bad and actually shouldn't even have to you shouldn't have to tiptoe around it when you're like no actually like many of these things are not pleasant to live around and we should just be fine with saying that their issue is they just can't admit it and look i mean i think it's going to be a big death now. You know, it, it's interesting. Of all the things Oz has hammered Fetterman on, crime has been number one. And the reason why I know that it's real is my girlfriend's sister lives in downtown Philly. And the shit you hear about Philly, you're like, listen, this is unsustainable. And whether it makes the na- national news or not, I bet your ass people who live in Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia, they know what's going on. And when Fetterman can't even acknowledge that this is bad, or can't say like any, frankly, just doesn't have a real critique because he's so captured by like this critical, you know, race theory complex. Well, what do you expect? I'm, I'm shocked that Tom Ricks said that because. Well, we, yeah, dude, you know, I mean, you know, you're not, you're not shocked. Tom Ricks is a foreign policy slash U.S. history guy. I know. He likely gets his news from MSNBC and like the death, that's the generic take. I mean, I had a weird, I had a weird experience. I'm not going to name a name here, but I had a friend from back from Portland, um, stay with me. And he was talking, he's like, yeah, it's funny. My parent is back from high school. He's like, yeah, my parents, they like say they're conservatives now because 
they don't like the crime. Back in high school, they were very like hippy dippy, mm -hmm. almost certainly smoked pot. And now they're like, we're conservatives now. And that to me is kind of the story of the policy and po the political failure here. Because A, no, you guys are not conservatives. Right. right. But especially in a city like Portland and the Portland suburbs, the inability of anyone slightly left of center to talk about crime as a real issue has just left such an opening that that mm -hmm. should just, that, that's, that's just like a disaster. And Inflation when they say, too. and when, here's the thing, when they say they're conservative, we're not saying, I'm not saying, but, and this is why I'm saying you guys like actually aren't like Republicans or conservatives. They, they are saying, they're not saying like, you know what? Time for three strikes laws. They're not saying, all right, defund. No, they are literally mm -hmm. just saying, oh, wow. It seems like there's been a real quality of life decrease in our city. And all of the people who like we nominally see as Democrats are either not acknowledging it or are saying this isn't real. Look, look at these facts. But this is my other funny. This this was this was a the best tweet on this topic I saw. Um, it was pointed out that if you look at the crime increase, quote unquote, and you zoom, it's obviously true that since 2020 there's been an increase. But if you zoom out, it's nowhere near as bad as things were. In the right. 80s and 90s, and the way someone explained this tweet, they said, quote, that's like you're running a division of a company and your sales have collapsed the past yeah. two years. And then you say, but listen, manager, if you zoom out 30 years ago, my quadra, quadra, quadra predecessor mm -hmm. did way worse. It's like, guys, if you're in a position of political responsibility, no one is grading you, especially if something as complicated as crime, right? Because there's like, Okay, is there violent crime versus death? Is there burglaries yep. versus, and, and this is the other last thing that I really just hate. I really hate the whole, when, when, when you see these debates in San Francisco about, um, well, those people who are stealing from the Walgreens and the CVSs, they're not actually like hurting anybody. It's not actually a violent crime. So that going up can't be compared to the fact that like actual like murders have kind of gone down. If you aren't generally are so bad at politics, you can't just perceive what it's like as a local, largely apolitical listener or viewer or person in that city to watch that happen, then then you just shouldn't be in this business. Uh, like there's a difference in the job of being a statistician. That's obviously very important, but a statistician should not run talking points for like the national democratic or local yeah. democratic party. Right. Yeah. The other one that I really hate is like, well, crime is up in red states. Not, I'm like, listen, that's even worse look, for you, by the way, because that yeah, just means exactly. the country itself is not doing right. well. Right. And also, actually, <laughs> if you do look, it's usually like blue city inside like Kansas City or something like, well, yeah, it's technically a red state. But <laughs> it's like, look, yeah, it's, it's just who like, runs that state uh, or who runs that uh, who runs that city? Well, the people in the state fucking know and they're going to vote uh, accordingly. I don't know. The whole thing, it's really disheartening because I think the election is really sad because I think what's going to happen is that the GOP is going to win a historic victory and then they're going to learn the correct political lesson that all they should do is just fuck shit up for Joe Biden and for the country for like two years. Shut down the government. All of these are empirically correct political decisions. Shut down the government. Uh, go gamble with the debt ceiling. The more chaos that there is for the United States, the better. More chaos equals bad for Joe Biden equals good for Donald Trump. Imagine the make America great again message coming out of chaos. You can scream till you're blue in the face that it's the Republicans fault. No one will believe you as we all saw 
during the Obama administration. So my default is that, and again, you know, I don't, I don't want it to be this way, but it is, which is that you should not pass a single program. You should do nothing except hurt Joe Biden as much as humanly possible. You should try and make sure the gas prices go up. <laughs> you should try and make sure that he's not able to pass like a single piece of re successful relief or anything. And you should ruthlessly investigate his government as much as possible while maintaining your base as Trump runs on a make America great again, again message. That's what I would do. Cynically, that's what I would do. That's, that's, that's all I would want. And I think that the last two years have borne that out. No senator is getting a plus for working with the Democrats to send out the $2,000 checks. They're just not. Uh, what they are getting props for, not only from the base, but in general, is being like, I'm going to stick it to Joe Biden. It's a big problem. And this is why, from the start, I would have pushed back against the Joe Biden is FDR. Because I, mean, I want to say, I want to say that it's been the last five minutes saying like what I think Joe Biden has done well. Um, you know, since we last spoke, really support the semiconductor moves yeah. like cutting off China. Totally. Um, I think that the, actually, frankly, just actually the approach to China has been very good. Continued. Mm -hmm. It would have been like, you know, this soccer, right? We talked about this. Like, John, guys, John Kerry is leaving the Biden administration. And a huge part of that, there was this huge debate at the start of the presidency. Is Joe Biden going to do the following? Is Joe Biden going to say, wow, Trump focused on China. We're going to focus on Russia because we need to do a big green climate alliance with China. And we're going to subsume trade policy, Uyghurs in Western China, all those different issue areas. Uh, John Kerry lost that debate. Like this was a really yeah. serious debate. And I think Joe Biden really deserves props to that. I think the real, diff I, my, my genuine take on this, especially if Joe Biden doesn't win in 2024, is there's a more of a decent chance that Joe Biden could end up being perceived as a George H.W. Bush style figure in the sense that consistently made or was not rewarded for like political decisions in the short to medium term, but on a bunch of big questions. Frank, I think the big question this presidency was, are you going to continue the Trump-China policy? Like, if we think back to this administration. I agree. 50 years from now, that is going to be the detail that mattered. Just really pushing the point of no return when he genuinely did not. Like, he would have been politically rewarded. I think, I, I, think, yeah. I think he would have been, it would have been easy. I, I think the thing the MSNBC base probably wanted to hear was, racist Trump did this China thing. We're going to focus on Russia and get a big climate deal. He did not do that. And that was a genuine like policy decision that really mattered. And George H.W. Bush, like terrible economy, doesn't win re-election, but managed the end of the Cold War really successfully. That's the way I think this is going to really perceive. And it's kind of just like unfortunate that we're in this awkward political situation where we're, there isn't a way to reward. I wish there was a way to reward the long-term parts while also saying, hey, like you didn't get the political narrative together. There's just no reward in it. That's, look, I think that's why I think politics sucks. It probably has always been this way, although I'm not so sure. I just think that with Biden, I feel bad for him in a way, but I also think, I don't know, I'm torn on this question. I think he should have taken a real honest look at himself and just said, Joe, I can't do this. He's here's the problem. Old. He knew this. He was know, the only one who could be Trump. This is the I know, right? if but you're guess Joe what? Biden. <laughs> I know, man, but he is just too old. Did you see that thing where he was talking about 
uh, the war in Iraq where his son died. It's like it's painful. This is it's, the push. It's this is painful. Like, this is my problem with that idea, though. There was, if you were Joe Buck, once again, we're approaching this as like the perspective of like a center left Democrat, how they would say it. Joe Biden is the only one who's going to win. And if you're Joe Biden, especially given what I just said about, I think Joe Biden would say, I came here to do what I needed to do. What if Trump beats him? I mean, that's pretty Well, bad. then, well, the honest to take To be honest, is, Trump winning again post-January 6th is like actually very bad for if Trump. If Trump comes back in 2025, there's basically, there's no other Democrat who could do it. Like, this is, this is what, this is what Joe Biden has always said to his critics. You know, I've read a lot of books yeah. on this. Joe Biden has said, look, Joe Biden ran for president like four or five times. Four times, yeah. This was the actual time that he actually could win. And that is the key thing here. He looked at the field, and I think he I think he was just largely correct. No, no, no. I think he was correct on everything. I'm yeah. saying, I just think that history will not remember him kindly. Uh, and here's the other thing. Man, it's, he's old. It's a stressful job. It is taking his toll on the man. And I worry about his health. I worry about it all, especially in the context of Ukraine. I'm worried as hell. I think he's going to die. Or I, I think he very easily could die. Like, it, I mean, look at it. Like, you see the news about Ash Carter? Yeah. You know, Ash Carter. He's 69. Obama's, Obama's yeah. uh, last uh, last Secretary of Defense, like very well-respected yeah. MIT I saw, professor. I saw him at the gym two weeks ago. And he's dead. Like he just dropped dead of a heart attack. Biden is 20 years old. He's going to turn 80 this month. He's an old man. That is a stressful, stressful job. And look, I agree with you on all these meta things but i'm like man you're you're putting us in a terrible position. if he dies before 2024 like he has put the country in a very precarious situation and he does he does deserve the blame for that if if that happens because anybody could know look i think the thing that what what biden deserves the blame for was the kamala harris selection yeah i agree that's um, what i'm saying like that like, that that really he didn't take it seriously with the seriousness it deserves and, and, country, what's, man, and what's so awkward is like we're not just being partisan hacks when we say that like yeah we all know who's leaking about how about Kamala's performance. Yeah. Like there, there's right. a bit, what, 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 what they, what, what's clear trying to happen here is that the Biden folks, center left world is working to try to cut off Kamala's ability to be, to, to be the Democratic presidential. Mm-hmm. Because that would obviously go disastrously. Um, so yeah, I think it's the, it's the, it's the story of the, the story of the past two years. The way I'll sum this up from my perspective is Democrats thought that 2020 changed the game when it really didn't. No. Actually, no, we were this way. Democrats thought that March 2020 lockdown to January 6, 2021 fundamentally changed politics in a way that just wasn't true. Here's a good way of maybe even thinking about this. You either believe that 2016 was a fluke or that it changed everything. All data currently indicates to me that it did change everything. It changed the way people vote. It changed who votes. It changed the economy. It changed their political uh, realignment. There was a, you remember, this was a huge debate. Was Trump just a bad candidate? Was Hillary just a bad candidate or not? Well, he won 10 million more votes. So actually he had a lot of structural strength behind him. And actually it was a genuine political change. And all current election data, polling misses, changes in the way that we think about things, you need to decide whether you believe that or not. And I actually, here's my critique of Biden. I, do, I don't think he changed. I think he believed the March 2020 thesis that the country was fundamentally different. And part of it, many of his missteps have been trying to reenact 2012 era policy in a 2022 world. 
And, you know, interestingly enough, Obama has adapted quite well. I've been watching Obama. His social security uh, speech. Social security was great, man. That's exactly, he's, he's good. Like, look, you know, you go, everybody listening to this knows that I have many, many problems with President Obama, but you cannot deny that he was one of once in a generation political talent. And I think if the constitution allowed him, I think he would run again and I think he would win easily. I think he would easily win. Here's my last statement before we cut. I saw a brilliant tweet um, that I actually have no argument against. The tweet Mm -hmm. was, look, Democrats talk about how the structure of the Senate and redistricting are the real impediment to Democratic political party power. Let's actually get real. The 22nd Amendment is actually, the 22nd Amendment, this is being the two-term limit on the presidency, is actually the structural reality that's most hobbled the Democrats because the guys, the guy pointed out, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were the most talented post-1980s politicians of their generations. They easily would have both won won re-election. Henry Young, I thought you just kept on going forever. Them getting cut off when they got cut off fundamentally just ship we just reshape the political i think i'm against the 22nd amendment i've decided i'm against i was i'm against term limits um i find i i've just been thinking you know here in virginia glenn youngkin is only a one-term governor i hate that system what's the point five years and then you know like why why bar if they do a good job then they'll get reelected. look i mean everybody's like oh fdr listen fdr a whole country knew what he was getting and they loved him they trusted him so what's wrong with that like i the more i think about it the whole idea was that they would consolidate centers of power. It was all bullshit. You know, you and I have read the Truman book. Half the FDR people were out of the White House after he died. They didn't consolidate any centers of power. Actually, there were multiple different aides who ended up working for FDR. Uh, if JFK transitioned to LBJ is another one. LBJ kept on, you know, a huge portion of the Kennedy White House just left um, after. Anyway, so I don't think that the core idea that having a president that would get elected over and over again would like corrupt our core and higher institutions. I don't think that was even true with FDR. I think it was Republicans and others who were just scared and they decided to make it some sort of like enshrine the Washington rule, but it was ran for three terms for a reason. It's a, it's it's a revenge bill. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll, we'll cut here, but I would just say that I'm I'm not sure anything about the presidency, but yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm I'm generally very anti-term limit. In the state and career guest context. Well, we've got a gal, we've got another recording. All right. Good interview set. But everyone, thank you for joining. If you listen this far, you love the realignment. So we'd love for you to go to realignment.supercast.com and check out what we've got there. Hope you all enjoyed Do this it. episode. I really liked your interview in the studio. I thought it looked good. I think I used that studio in Austin. But yeah, you, it, yeah, it, it's, it's good. good. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like this sort of mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.